Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. Sonia Crid and Rasputina are two of the most powerful women in Malifaux. One is aligned with the Guild and is a master of fire and flame. The other is an arcanist partisan and calls upon the powers of snow and ice. In part one of Genie in the Bottle, these two forces of nature prepare for confrontation. Genie in the Bottle Sonia's Inner Struggle with Power by Graham Stevenson Winter had come to Malifaux. Heavy cowls of white draped every rooftop that still resisted the weight of snow. Each night echoed with the muffled crash of another ruined home, and each morning's pale sun revealed more splintered black holes that dotted every street like teeth wrenched from a jaw. The air was sharper than a blade and sliced into every pound of exposed flesh, severing all sensation from ears, noses, fingers and toes. Those lucky few that had no need to leave their hearths watched the less fortunate struggling through thigh-deep drifts from behind a scum of ice almost as thick as the glass panes themselves. The cold was a palpable thing. It sank long, numbing fingers deep into the roots of the city, questing through brick, wood and earth to grasp the living and squeeze the warmth from them. No one and nothing seemed safe. Beggars in gutters, horses in stables, beer in barrels, all were found frozen solid. Coal and firewood were quickly becoming scarce, and those too slow or poor to get their share were turning to desperate measures. Furniture, carts and sheds were smashed and burned nightly, books vanished from shelves and libraries, all in the effort to live one more night. Snow fell day and night. It piled in great sloping drifts against outhouses and buildings, and turned to a freezing brown sludge that lay in a knee-deep slick on every street and thoroughfare. Each morning, hopeful eyes cast skyward, but each morning the same oppressive grey blanket hung over the city, so low that the uppermost spires and towers seemed to vanish into cotton wool. The city had been smothered under this frozen blanket for three weeks, and there was no end in sight. Malifaux station had fared better than most. The constant trample of rushing passengers, porters, baggage handlers and others had kept most of the main causeways relatively clear. The blazing hearth fires and braziers around the station interior stood testament to it being one of the few places that had yet to feel the pinch of the city's fuel crisis. Barton Bragg looked outwardly calm as he made his way out onto the platform. The plump woman herding a half-dozen squealing children past him would never have guessed he was in fear for his life, nor did the bent-backed old porter following her with a massive trunk in his arms suspect that he had not slept in three nights for fear of capture and interrogation. As was often the way with underhand things, Barton's anxiety had grown inexorably as the days between him and escape had ticked away, and now that he had reached the final moments before he was beyond the clutches of the guild, the fear in him was building to a crescendo. He would have been soaking with sweat 
if not for the biting chill that was bleeding through his woolen suit. He shifted his satchel from one shoulder to the other and checked again that the distant white mushroom cloud of steam had not stopped. The train was still inbound, and in a few minutes he would be aboard and free. Crunching through the snow that was dappled with crushed stone for traction, he moved with as much nonchalance as he could muster further along the platform, intending to lose himself among the stacked crates and boxes that would be loaded onto the train's cargo carriages. He had a ticket for the second-class passenger area, but felt it would be better to board the train in secret and take his appointed seat once they were well underway. It would not do to be so easily located were interested eyes to review the passenger manifest. The satchel was heavy, and he shifted it constantly. He had wrapped each of the plates individually in cheesecloth to muffle any clinking, but gold was weighty no matter what you wrapped it in, and the leather strap cut cruelly into the meat of his shoulder. He had never seen plates quite like them before. Each of them was rectangular, perhaps five inches by three, and about half an inch thick, blank on one side and engraved on the other. He was no expert, but he knew they were very old. The carvings were mostly inscrutable, but to look at them for too long made his head ache, and he preferred to turn them face down so his fingers could slide over the smooth metal backs. There were seven of them in his satchel, each one unique, and each worth a king's ransom earthside. They were his, not stolen but earned, fair payment for dark work. Barton Bragg had never liked working for the Guild, and had been only too happy to help out the pale woman. He had never liked Malifaux, and frequently cursed the day he had boarded that train. But like so many others, he had been seduced by the prospect of a new frontier, a new land rich with opportunity, and the Guild had been only too happy to pay his way. The reality of Malifaux had turned out to be quite different, and Barton had become one of many slaving to repay their Guild debt in a subterranean brick maze. His quick mind and quick smile had saved him, and after a time he had progressed to an office with a window and a little money. But he had never been happy. The guild's leash around his neck had never stopped chafing. When the pale woman finally found him, he might have done what she asked for the promise of freedom alone, but when he felt that first gold plate in his hands, he was lost. The way he viewed it, the information would have leaked out in any event. The how and when were mere details, why shouldn't he make a little profit for himself at the same time? He owed the guild nothing. It had leached back his debt a dozen times over already, and, like all vampires, would never stop until there was nothing of him left to leech. The train approached, its engine's rhythmic chuffing growing steadily louder. He could feel the weight of it now. The wooden platform throbbed underfoot. A dozen broad-shouldered labourers appeared from a shed behind the platform, tugging on woollen mitts as they reluctantly left their coal brazier behind. He fell in behind them and followed their grumbling and hawking until he was almost at the end of the platform. The station veranda was long gone now, and above him hung a grey and pregnant sky. More snow was on the way, and most likely within the hour. His anxiety was momentarily forgotten, when the locomotive finally appeared through the swirling ground fog. 
a long torpedo of black iron that seemed to glower at him as it approached. He had seen the train before a handful of times, but that had been years ago. Hundreds of trips through the breach had twisted the locomotive until it resembled something more alive than not. The boilers had grown enormously bloated and seemed almost to bulge visibly, and scalding hot steam now blasted from a bifurcated mound like a great snorting metal bull. Even the steel skin of the locomotive was different, greasy and warped like an expanse of wet leather. As the fanged moor of the locomotive's cattle grid rumbled past, Barton was enveloped in a billowing cloud of steam. It stank of blood and hot metal, but conversely was the warmest he had been in days. As the steam cloud tore apart on the sharp winds that followed, he caught a glimpse of movement in the cab. The driver. Exposed to the same destructive warping energies as his engine, the driver was a subject of great controversy in Malifaux. No one dared approach the engine now, for fear of seeing what had become of him. It was enough for the regulatory board to know that the train still ran. They fed it water and coal, and kept well clear of the shadows behind the engine cowling, and the thing that moved and chittered there. Barton had the uncomfortable sensation of being watched as the train lumbered past, but what he actually saw was less than a silhouette, only a suggestion of chitin and hair glistening red in the light from the boiler fire, and then the engine was passed and the carriages began to rattle and clunk into the station. He waited while the passengers began to bustle out, their trunks and crates being unloaded by the puffing labourers, and then the new travellers began to emerge from the comparative warmth of the station interior and hurry aboard. There was no sign of any guild officials anywhere on the platform, and the train was filling up fast, but Barton waited on. He had one last job before he left Malifaux forever. The pale woman appeared at his elbow. He felt the air sharpen yet further with her arrival, and a tiny spray of frost crawled across the metal wheels of the nearest carriage. I wasn't sure you were going to come, he said, his breath sending out little locomotive clouds of his own. The woman said nothing, but when she smiled up at him, there was no threat in her eyes. He was struck again by the colour of her skin, pure white, like porcelain. It made her eyes very blue and her lips very red. I have what you asked for, he continued. It took some getting, but the source is reliable. Good, she said. Her accent was thick and very foreign, and her voice was much too deep for such a slight frame. Even with the fur hat atop her head, she wasn't much taller than his shoulder. And I have what you asked for. Barton had almost gotten used to the fact that the pale woman's breath didn't steam like everyone else's. He had no doubt that if he touched her cheek, the cold would burn his fingers. Shall we trade then? He asked hesitantly. Their previous negotiations had been painless things, but he was suddenly struck with a doubt that, here at the eleventh hour, she would betray him. She smiled again. If possible, her teeth were even whiter than her skin. You have always proven trustworthy before, she said, holding out two gold plates and a fur mitten. I have no reason to doubt you now.
He took the heavy plates and slipped them into his coat pocket before the freezing metal could blister his skin. He understood that the plates were currency of some sort, but from which ancient civilization he couldn't guess. The markings were alien, but the glint of gold was familiar enough. The pale woman watched him expectantly. She does have one vulnerability, he said. The mask. The pale woman waited. It came from the witch hunter armory. He elaborated. She needs it to stay in control. In control of what? The pale woman's questions were always to the point. I don't know. Barton admitted. The pale woman's brows drew together at this, but he continued. There is something inside her, some kind of energy or presence. Very powerful, very hostile. The mask is what keeps it trapped, like the cork of a bottle. The pale woman considered this, chewing her cherry red lip. And when I pop it? She asked. Barton shrugged. Either she will lose control, or she'll be fighting so hard to retain it she won't see you coming. He did not know Sonia Crit and felt no loyalty towards her. It was no concern of his if she lived or died. The only things he cared about now were weighing down his suit pockets and satchel. You are sure of this? The pale woman asked, as sure as I was about everything else I told you. She nodded. They both knew his intelligence had been sound. There was a moment when the pale woman seemed to forget he was there, standing motionless while the freezing mists curled around her ankles, her ice-blue eyes dulled by whatever inner distance she was gazing across. When the piercing warble of the station master's whistle finally brought her back to the present, she seemed to have returned with some new knowledge or realisation. He had the unpleasant notion that she had been speaking to someone or something else while they both stood there. I will miss you, Barton Bragg, she said, her heavy accent flattening and distorting the words. You have been very useful to my cause. The locomotive engine belched a huge cloud of steam and began a low shunting as the boiler pressure increased. The train was going to move out imminently, and there wasn't even a sniff of guild anywhere on the half-deserted platform. His heart soared when he realised that he was nearly free. Well, next time you're earthside, the bourbon's on me, he said magnanimously as he stepped up onto the cargo door of the carriage. The pale woman pulled a face. Wodka she said. It's a date, he said, waving as the carriage shuddered and the entire train began to slowly inch backwards out of the station. The pale woman watched him with a sad smile. She raised a furry mitt as the train continued to back up, and then she and the labourer shack and the receding station building were lost in a sudden flurry of snow. Barton hurried inside to find a warm seat, absurdly touched by the pale woman's sorrowful expression as he left her behind. She had been a sweet little thing, and he was saddened to think he wouldn't see her again. Well, who knew what was around the corner? He had his life and his freedom, and a wealthy future ahead of him. Things were definitely looking up.
Rasputina watched the train as it slowly puffed and blustered its way out of the station in reverse, feeling unhappy and eager in equal measure. The information about Sonia Crid's mask rang true. The thing at the heart of her stirred and told her that it was so, that Crid now played host to one of their number. But it was not a welcome house guest. December tasted outrage and hatred on the winds blowing from the guild, and Rasputina knew that Crid would be weak. There would perhaps never be a better time to strike. And yet she was sad. She had liked Barton. He had been so agreeable and so cheap. She had other agents within the guild who demanded ten times what he had accepted. But that was not the issue. She did not feel she had used him. It had been an equitable relationship for them both. It was only now that their business was concluded that she was forced to tie up loose ends. A silent, blue-skinned figure draped in furs stepped from around a stack of forgotten crates, stopping a respectful arm's length away. Bury his gold with him, she said, her eyes following the train and the motionless figures crouched on its roof, watching for her signal. He earned it. The silent one bowed and turned to vault onto the train roof. Rasputina watched the shapes turn as one and stalk along the roof towards the cargo carriages until they and the train were swallowed by the strengthening snowstorm. Sonia's version of events was that she had drunk a little too much whiskey and kicked a few guys around who most likely deserved it anyway. Samael's version was a little more detailed and featured him dragging the screaming crid off nine cowering miners, five of them beaten senseless, and throwing her into a snowbank before the shimmering nimbus that was scorching her duster burst into fully-fledged flame. In truth, he didn't think she could even drink through that mask, but with a lot of perseverance she had been able to flick her head back and throw most of the contents of a shot glass through the narrow mouth slit and down her neck. It was a pretty odd sight, and unfortunately for the miners at the bar, one of them had mentioned as much. That was when it hit the fan. She had surfaced from the melting snow in a cloud of steam with her fists raised, and for a second Samael thought he was going to have to defend himself. But then she dropped on her butt. She had laughed then, but there was no mirth in it. Eventually he had hauled her to her feet and helped her back to her bunk at the guildhouse, but he spent a sleepless night staring at his ceiling. The mask was supposed to keep Cherouf in check, but he wasn't convinced. He'd never seen Cridge drink so much in his life before. She'd gone through two bottles in the twenty minutes it had taken her to start a fight, and her behaviour was growing steadily more unstable. She had always been volatile. It was in her nature. Before, it had given her an edge of unpredictability and genius that had seen both of them through half a hundred narrow scapes. Now she was a liability. Her control was crumbling, and Samael could almost smell the fuse burning, it pained him to admit it, but in this struggle for supremacy between the woman and the tyrant, Cherouf was winning. Crid was withdrawn when they met the following morning. Her eyes were swallowed by the shadows of the mask, and her head hung as though the weight of it was too much for her. He noticed her knuckles were skinned and bruised, 
as she buckled the heavy rune sword across her back. What's on the cards for today, boss? He asked, hoping he sounded more upbeat than he felt. There's a report of silent ones congregating near the quarantine zone. Sounds like a ritual gathering. We'll take a look, see if there's any truth to it. Her voice was flat. Sure. Grid didn't move for a moment, her tousled hair hiding the side of the mask nearest to him. Her hands worked needlessly at the buckles of her scabbard. Last night, she started awkwardly. With nothing, Samael said immediately. A scuffle. He remembered one miner sobbing an apology on his knees just before a livid crid smashed a table over his head, but he kept his face neutral. Those guys deserved everything they got. Probably right, Crid said, but her voice held no conviction. The mask turned his way, but the expression was unreadable. Anyway, I'm glad you stepped in when you did. Sure, he said. You betcha. The snow was still falling as they crossed Curmudgeon Square. Even through two layers of wool and a thick leather poncho, Samael could still feel the cold air circling him like an animal, looking for a way in. Crid was silent, other than the white breath huffing from her mask, and they made good time until they got away from the busy guild area. Out of the main streets, the depth of the snow increased rapidly, and they were soon shoving their way through knee, then thigh, then hip, deep snow, as they approached the quarantine zone to the south. Finally, they stopped at a T-junction, where the inhabited buildings had petered out to a slouched, snow-covered ruin of masonry that might once have been a school. Crid took a minute to look around. Samael knew she was retuning her senses, tweaking whatever internal antennae she used to hunt down the arcanist scum, sniffing for traces of their sorcery in the ether. Boss, he said eventually. She never turned, but something in her stance told him she was listening. Boss, about the... about that thing inside you, he said. The tyrant, she said. Jeruf. Can you feel it? Grid pushed deeper into a drift of snow, brushing away the white powder to touch the broken stone behind. Sometimes I feel it in my head, she said quietly scratching on the inside of my skull, hunting for a way out. But the mask keeps it bound, right? Samael was eager to introduce the metal talisman and source of their hope. It never sleeps, Crid said, as though she hadn't heard him. The nights are the worst. It speaks to me, taunts me. Samael began to understand. The whiskey helps you sleep. It used to. Not so much now. But you're okay, right? Crid turned to look at him, and the mask eyes looked hollow. Sure, she said. She sounded dreadfully tired. He thought the conversation was over, and followed her through a brick maze as they ventured further into the quarantine zone. She surprised him some minutes later by speaking again. They don't trust me now she said. You know that, right? Samael knew what she was talking about. 
had seen the looks and experienced the awkward silence from other guild members. Despite Sonia's seniority and her reputation in Malifaux, it was becoming increasingly clear that she was viewed as tainted or damaged. A few of the junior officers had even displayed open contempt. He stamped it out whenever he could, but he knew that it was still happening and growing more frequent. I know it, he said. And you know what? I don't give a damn. Crid laughed, and for once it sounded genuine. Well, that's good to know. Samael expressed his opinion of guild bureaucracy by spitting into the snow. I put my life in your hands every day, and you ain't dropped it yet. He was about to elaborate on exactly where the Governor-General's personal staff could stuff their opinions, when the snowdrift he had spat into exploded in a blue-white crackle of energy. Crid was thrown across the alley, and Samael was half-blinded and driven to his knees by the ferocious hail of stinging ice. As he shook the snow from his face and hair, he saw the pale form of a silent one race down the alley, long legs pumping through the snow, her fur cape flying out behind her. Orcanists, he spat. Crid was up an instant later and herring after their quarry, her long coat and hair streaming. A fireball snapped through the air, but the silent one had already taken a sharp left turn out of sight. The ice-blued alley momentarily flashed orange as the fireball detonated against the far wall. Samael ripped his collier from its holster and gave chase, but his eyes were on the crooked rooftops overhead. Silent Ones didn't have a habit of hiding in snow piles, and he had an uncomfortable feeling she had been waiting for them. He skidded around the corner, following the churned-up snow trail as Crid blew apart a rickety shack door and ducked through the building in an effort to cut off the fleeing arcanist. Samael was right on her heels, shouldering through smoking timbers and a murky hovel half-filled with iron pots and clay bowls. He burst into another bright morning alley to see Crid's coattails vanish around a bend fifty yards ahead. Boss! He hollered, smelling a ruse. Boss, wait up! Samael was quick on his feet, certainly quicker than Crid on any other day. But the dense alleys were filled with snow, and he stumbled as much as he ran. Also, something seemed to be lending speed to the witch hunter as she bounded through the thigh-deep snow. She was pulling away from him. This was wrong. He felt it in his guts. The old Crid would never have fallen for an ambush. She'd have used witchling stalkers and smoked the arcanists out, cornered and eradicated them like rats. But now she was racing headlong after a lone silent one, launching fireballs and baying like a hound, running blindly into whatever snare they had dreamed up for her. He had to catch her first. Boss! He roared, rounding another corner and seeing her away up ahead, legs pumping, smoke and flames billowing from her raised hands. Boss! It's a trap! It's... A furry, snow-covered arm as thick as a tree limb swept out of a side alley and crunched into his head. Samael performed a graceless somersault and came down in a heap, stunned. That's it 
for another episode of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for the conclusion of Genie in the Bottle. <laughs>